You are listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at page uh, 807 in the Pew Bible, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse number 1. Let's all stand as we get our Baptist aerobics in this morning in Matthew chapter 2. In verse number 1, the Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated. There's a lot of things that have happened in the past year. Some of you, maybe 2019 was the worst year of your life, or some of you, maybe it was the best year of your life. I'm not really sure. But I'll tell you one thing. This time last year, I believe no one would have ever thought that Kanye West would be creating and singing an album about Jesus. Probably this time last year, no one would have thought that he'd be traveling the country, doing Sunday services, sharing the gospel with everyone, and telling them that Jesus is the Lord of his life. In his song, Salah, he says, ye should be free. John 8, 36, to whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He saved a wrench like me. You know, this time last year, I would have never dreamt that I would be opening a sermon talking about Kanye. The guy who wrote the song, Gold Digger, the guy who said, I am a God, is now the guy who is saying that Jesus is king. Now, this may seem kind of surreal, and there are some people that are skeptical, but I want you to see something, and that is this. It shouldn't be surprising to us, because it is no secret what God can do. God can save anyone he wants to save, because that's what makes Christmas so amazing, is that Jesus the King stepped down from his throne, came to this earth to save sinners like you and me. He came to save those who are inside the church, and he came to save those who are outside the church. He came to save those who are near, who we would think are near to God, and he came to save those to whom we would think are far from God. So it doesn't matter who you are today, you can be saved. You can know Jesus as your Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, the reason that I share that with you this morning is this. 
Matthew is writing. This is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew is writing. He is a Jew who had given his life to follow Jesus. He was once a tax collector. And Matthew is writing to a particularly Jewish audience. And of all the people that you would think would not be in Matthew's narrative of Jesus' birth, of Jesus coming into this world, of the Christmas story as we know it, if there was probably the most unimaginable, unlikely group of people, it would have been the people we just talked about, the wise men or the magi. See, the Matthew's gospel is written to Jews, and his theme is this, that Jesus is king. And so it is very fitting that Jesus, his story, that Matthew in Jesus' story would include these magi, would include these wise men. It's interesting, in Luke's gospel, Luke presents Jesus as a servant. And who does he have coming to Jesus at his birth? Shepherds, lowly people. Here, Matthew is presenting Jesus as king, and here, who does he have? He has these powerful, wealthy, influential wise men coming from the east, coming from afar to worship the King Jesus. So the Magi this morning are the unsung heroes of Christmas and how they uniquely were used in the Christmas story. Just like the Old Testament prophets that we've talked about and John the Baptist, these wise men pointed the world to Jesus as being the true wisdom of God, the King of kings, who is worthy of our absolute and total worship. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. Number one, who they were, why they came, and what they did. Real quick, number one, who they were. The Bible says that after Jesus was born, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Much of what a lot of us know about the wise men comes from probably some of the Christmas plays that we played. My first ever Christmas play I was in, I was one of the wise men. And I remember, I was a young, young guy, and we were to get a bathrobe, put on the bathrobe. We had to get a crown, so we went to Burger King. You remember when they used to give out those crowns at Burger King? Not crayons, but crowns. And I would come in there, and then they would they put a beard on me. I mean, man, I thought I was hot stuff. I was a wise man. I played my part. I brought the gold and frankincense and myrrh. And a lot of you, maybe that's kind of where you've had any interaction with the wise men is only on the Christmas season. And we really haven't thought too much about them because a lot of us, we get our information about these men from a song written in 1857 called We Three Kings. You know that song? We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We travel so far. So you know that song, right? Some of you do. Half of you do. None of you do. It doesn't matter. But the problem of it is, as great as some of the theology is of that song, there are some factual things that are probably maybe not accurate. The first thing that, we do, that a lot of people think are true, but it's not true, is that a lot of people think there were three of them, right? The song says, we three kings. And, and a lot of that is attributed to a guy named Origen, who around the second, third century AD said that there were three because there were three gifts. The truth is, we don't really know how many there were. Now, some people say, well, we just assume there has to be three gifts. Everybody brought a gift, and there was only three. Well, here's the thing. If I give my wife three gifts for Christmas, that doesn't mean there's three of me, all right? So we don't know. Some scholars say there were as many as two or as few as two or as many as 14. We don't know. What we probably do know is this, is that they brought a caravan of people. It I just don't want you to think of three guys sitting on one, uh, one big old camel riding on in to Jerusalem. They were probably in a caravan with all kinds of people, with soldiers who were protecting the wealth that they were bringing because there were just so many robbers in that day. So here they come in. They travel in the city. So probably there weren't three of them. Two, they probably weren't kings. 
You say, well, how about, why is it in the song that says, we three kings? Well, I don't know. I guess it sounds better than we three magi, okay? We three magi, it's hard to rhyme, so we'll call them kings. All right, anyway, I don't know. So the word wise men that you have here in the text is, is the word majoi, and we get our word magic from. These guys were astrologers. They were interpreters of dreams. They were a part of the scientific community. Uh, science in that day had a lot to do with the stars, so they were astronomers. They were a part of the cultural elites. They were very powerful people, but yet they were astro- astrologers, so they followed the signs of the stars. So they probably read each other's horoscopes to each other and, and, and all kinds of stuff like that. Now, in the Bible, every time an astrologer is mentioned, um, this word magi is mentioned, it's always condemned. Every time you read about this, of people practicing pagan arts and, and magic and, and what we would kind of see as witchcraft, they're always, it's always condemned in the Bible. But yet what we understand about these guys at this day, that they were, they were pagans. They were Gentiles. They, they were worshiping the stars. They were worshiping the moon. They were wealthy people. They were powerful people, but they weren't Christians. They weren't followers of God. Now, some say maybe they were, but the majority opinion says they probably weren't. But here's what we see in this text that I think is very unique. In the Bible, every time you read the Bible, when you see the word magi there, they're always condemned. But yet Matthew includes these men into this story, and he does it in a very positive light. And the only reason that we can think of that Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, which all Jews, uh, all the Jewish audience of that day would, would just, when they see the word magi, when they see the, the word astrologer, they're, they're like, that, that's evil, that's sinful, that's, we should boycott them, okay? But Matthew points them in the story of Jesus' life because it was a true story. Because no Jewish writer, no Jewish Christian writer would have ever put these men in the Jesus story if it wasn't true. Now, some of you say, well, pastor, does this mean that it's okay for Christians to be involved in astrology? Can I go home this afternoon and read my horoscope? Can I start calling 1-900 numbers again? Can I watch Harry Potter? Listen, the short answer is, listen, God does not want you involved in astrology. Why? Because it seeks truth and the future apart from God. You think you can find your future in the stars. Why don't you find your future in the Word of God? So, with all that being said, In this day, astrology was huge. In in the day of Jesus' birth, that was the science of the day. And so a lot of people were were somewhat superstitious, and and there was a lot of mythology around stars and and, and different kind of uh, uh, phenomena that's in the sky. As a matter of fact, a lot of this really picked up traction in 44 B.C. when Julius Caesar died. When he died, when he was buried, there was this great big supernova that appeared in the sky. And so his son, Augustus, used this to say, look, this shows you my dad was a god. The Caesars are gods. And so you need to worship me because I am a god because I am Caesar. And so this helped the astrology business of that day. And so there was a lot of people that thought, well, there was a star that appeared. So that shows us that the Caesars should be worshipped. But along with that, there was this thought in, Roman, in, in the Roman Empire that, that there was supposed to be a great ruler uh, of the day. There was rumors from guys like Josephus, Flavius, and Tacius who said that there would be a great ruler who would come out of Judea. So here, these guys are coming to Judea. These wise men, they're coming. They're traveling so far. They've seen a star in the sky, and now they're traveling from the east 
to the west. So more than likely they are from modern-day Iran or Iraq. They're in a part of ancient Babylonia, uh, Babylonia. And they were in the same location where just about 600 years prior, Israel was in captivity. So a lot of believers, a lot of scholars believe that these wise men were influenced by Hebrew scriptures. Because if you have read the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5 verse 11, the Bible says that Daniel was actually the chief or the captain of the Magi, of those people who practice those type of arts of astronomy and astrology. So they came from the east to the west, but here's one last thing I want you to know about them. They did not get to Bethlehem until after Jesus was born. Now, I know that messes up a lot of people's nativities. I'm not trying to burst your bubble, but I want you to understand that Jesus was a child when they visit, visited. More than likely, he was probably around the age of two. The reason why you say, how do you know that Jesus was around the age of two? Because Herod... After this event, after this situation took place in chapter 2, we're going to see that he will murder all children in, in that area two years and under. So that tells you that Jesus was probably two years old. Now, here's a question I had in my mind this week. Did Jesus have terrible twos? I don't think he did. He was probably a great kid. So what do we know about, what do we know? He wasn't probably, he was a great kid. So what do we know about these magi? You say, Pastor, why are you telling me? This is going to be important in a moment. I know that some of you, this is something that maybe will help you if you're ever on Christian Jeopardy. But listen, this will help. Here's what we have to understand about these guys. These guys were Gentiles. They were pagans. They were wealthy, powerful, highly educated men who followed the stars, and yet they dropped everything they were doing and made their way from Babylon to Jerusalem, traveling over a thousand miles in treacherous conditions with very limited information. It's amazing, right? We don't think about them in that way. We just kind of think of them with beards, bathrobes, and a Burger King crown. But no, there's way more to them than that. So not only do we see who they were, but I want you to ask yourself the question, well, why did they come? Why did they come? Well, they tell us why they come. As they come into town, they came into Jerusalem. In verse number two, here's the question they ask everybody in town. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they came into town looking for the king of the Jews. Now, for the Jewish audience that listened, this wasn't a new thing. The Magi were, were known to actually travel to different nations when a king was born. When they heard news that a king was born, they would come and travel. They would kind of come and see and kind of recognize them. And so for these guys to come in there was actually a little bit a way that Matthew authenticated Jesus' royalty, right? Because God sent what was normal in that day for the Magi to come in and do. He, they came to the true king. But they're entering into Jerusalem, and they're asking, who's the king? Now, the problem is this. There already was a king. There was a king of the Jews named Herod the Great. And so the Bible says, and he had been in this position for 40 years. So the Bible says that when he heard this news, he was troubled. And the Bible also says there's a little nuance that even the city of Jerusalem was troubled. You want to know why they were troubled? You want to know why Herod was troubled? Because he was crazy. He was a lunatic. He was psychotically paranoid and insecure. If you know much about Herod the Great, here's a little bit of information just so that you know. Herod the Great was a very good architect. He, he was a very skilled builder. He built the temple in Jerusalem. 
He built great, uh, uh, the great aqueduct system that went all throughout Israel that's even standing to this day. He built, uh, he built Masada, which is down in the south. He built Herodium. And a lot of these things that, that he built, he would put his name on them. Because in his mind, him, he building these things left a lasting legacy about who he was because that's all he cared about was himself. But not only was he a man who only cared about himself, but he also exploited people. Did you know that in that day, Roman tax was 12.5%? Tax collectors would typically charge people between 10 to 12.5% as well on top of them. That's why people didn't like tax collectors. But what Herod did is he charged... 50% taxes on top of all of that. So when he was the king of Judea for 40 years, he took in, the the people of Israel were taxed at 72 to 75%. Imagine that. And there was no sharing of anything. It was all King Herod's. And so it was even to a point, there's a story that was told that there was one time that Herod the Great was out of money, and so he had 45 of the wealthy citizens of Jerusalem arrested on trumped-up charges, and he had them murdered, and he seized all their property. He murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, and his brother-in-law. And then on top of that, he murdered three of his sons because he was afraid that all of them were going to overthrow him. It has been said that Augustus Caesar said this, it would be much safer to be one of Herod's cows than to be one of his sons. On the day of his death, Herod ordered the murder of dozens of priests all around Judea so that it would ensure that the land of Judea would mourn on the day of his death. So as the great theologian Barney Fife says, This man was a nut, and he was evil. And so he is disturbed, and the city is disturbed because there's somebody causing a disturbance in the force. Someone is saying, we're looking for a king of the Jews, and Herod said, I'm him. And they said, no, we don't want you. We want somebody who's got a star, and you don't have a star. They said, we saw his star. Now, a lot of speculation is, well, where did they get this information? Is it based on the rumors about Julius Caesar that, that a great king would always have some sort of sign in the sky? Or was this the influence of the Hebrew scriptures from people like Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? I tend to believe it was an influence of the Hebrews that were in captivity. And so I think that maybe what kind of led them to see this was a prophecy by a guy named Balaam who himself was known in Scripture as being a magi and which God spoke through him in Numbers chapter 24. Listen to what the Bible says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Does that sound familiar to anybody? These men were astronomers. And so the only reason that they would leave where they were to go where they went is they saw something they hadn't seen before. Now, there's a lot of speculation on what this star could have been. Some say that it was at this time of year and this time in which Jesus may have been born was the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn together. And it formed this kind of a star in the sky. Others say that it was a comet. Others a supernova basically an unexplainable uh, phenomena in the sky, or some even say it was the Shekinah glory of God. It doesn't really matter. What matters is this. Do you notice here that God got these men's attention in a way that they would pay attention so that he can bring them to Jesus? Do you understand that God commandeered the constellations to bring these men to him? 
And if God can commandeer the constellations to bring pagan Gentile moon worshipers to him, what can he not do for you? Do you understand that all of creation is at God's disposal to tell his story? The Bible says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. So God sent this star to be a witness to these men that a king was born. God loved these men enough to literally move the stars for them. And listen, if you are in Christ, God has leveraged the entire universe to shout to you his message of love and draw you to him. So the Bible says that their, their reason for coming was to worship him. So they ask, Herod, where is he? And Herod's like, that's a great question. The star brought them to Jerusalem, but it didn't bring them to Bethlehem. It brought them to Mary and Joseph's house, but these guys needed more information. So the Bible says that King Herod goes and he asked them. He asked the scribes, he asked the chief priests, the religious elites and the leading theologians of the day, where is the Messiah going to be born? Where is he who is supposed to be born that is king of the Jews? And the Bible says in verses 5 and 6 that the scribes and the chief priests read to him Micah chapter 5 verses 2 and 4. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and 4, it says that the, that the Messiah, that the shepherd, that the king is going to come out of Judah in a small backwoods town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five miles from Jerusalem. And so you would imagine in verse number 7 that after these scribes and Pharisees told where the Messiah would be born, no doubt, you have to just imagine, they asked King Herod, well, why do you want to know? And he said, well, we had these guys that said they saw a star, and said there was a king of the Jews. I'm wanting to know you tell me where, or I'll kill you, basically. It's kind of what Herod said. And so you would imagine that in verse number 7, that the next phrase would be, so the Magi went to Bethlehem, and the chief priest and the scribes loaded up the truck and followed them and searched all of Bethlehem to find the baby. But you don't read that in there, do you? We don't really know what these guys did, but basically what, it amount, what we kind of imagine is that they heard the news, they read the scripture, but they didn't really do anything about it. They just kind of went back to normal religious life. These guys had a knowledge of where, but they didn't care. Now listen, I find that it's often those who are so close that cannot see. You know, it is true. You think about this. Let's just think for a moment. You try to be a pastor to preach every, every week of the year, and around Christmas you have to tell a story that everyone's heard in a way that they've never heard before. And, you know, sometimes we, we preach messages like this on the wise men, and it's just kind of like I listen to it, I know, and you kind of anticipate what's going to be said, but it doesn't stir you. Isn't it amazing that we can be so close to Christmas, but yet so far away from God? Isn't it that we can be so close to seeing and celebrating and worshiping the King who has come, but yet we get so caught up in our own life that we don't give a rip? Look, I'm sure a lot of you are tired, probably already tired of Christmas. You wish Christmas was over. But listen, somebody was excited. We are close to Him. And these religious people were close to him, but they didn't care. And then you have Herod, who once he gets this information, the Bible says in verses 7 and 8 that he tells the wise men, this is what God's word said. 
And after you see the kid, would you guys mind coming back and tell me where this boy is? Because I would love to come and worship him. Now, I wish I could do one, but I think in this moment, if it were a movie, you would have this maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. It would be just right here. Ho, 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 Because we know that Herod pretended to worship, but he intended to murder. You want to know why Herod wanted to murder the kid? Because he was threatened by him. Any threat to his kingdom was an absolute threat. And you think about this. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He said that Herod's reaction to Christ is actually a picture of all of us. He says, if you want to be king, and someone else comes along saying he's the king, then one of you has to give in. Because only one person can sit on the absolute throne of your life. See, Jesus is very threatening. Because... He's so threatening and so offensive that if I give my life to him, that means he's in control of my life and I'm no longer in control. And I think that the real struggle in most people's hearts, if not everyone's heart, is a battle for supremacy. Because we want to remain in the throne of our lives and we'll do whatever it takes to remain in power. But here's the truth. If Christmas is real, if Jesus is really the Son of God born in Bethlehem, then you and I have lost every right to be in charge of our own lives. Because he is Lord and he is King. Now, one other thing you note about these guys is this, is that these guys knew, the, the Magi, they knew that there was a true king, but they didn't know where to find him. You say, well, pastor, why are you bringing that point up? Here's why. General revelation will only get you so far. It takes the word of God to get you all the way home. In other words, you can look at the stars and believe there's a God. You can look at the face of your newborn child and believe there's a God. You can go to the ocean and believe there's a God, but you're not going to know exactly who that God is. It's only through the revelation of the Word of God can you know who Jesus is. So it's amazing that even through indifferent religious people, God used them to get these men exactly where He wanted them to be. Isn't that amazing? That even us that are lazy and indifferent, God can use us. Isn't that crazy? These men came to Jerusalem because they saw a star. But even more, the reason that they really came, you don't know why they really came? I believe it's this, is that there was something in their hearts they knew was missing in their lives. They knew it. There was this God-shaped hole in their hearts, and in all their study, and all their uh, advancement in science, and all their wealth, and power, and fame, and understanding of the world, they knew that there was something and someone greater. There was a king. And this morning, you may know in your heart that there is something greater. There is something bigger. And there is this longing in your heart for satisfaction. There's this longing in your heart. There's this hole in your heart. And you're trying to fill the hole in your heart with anything and everything. But these men here followed after the true king. Now, here's the truth about that. I think that the only reason why these men sought after and believed that Jesus was the king is because their hearts had been supernaturally changed to want to seek and worship him. Because the only way you and I will ever seek and worship Jesus requires the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But God had stirred these men up, and he got them where he wanted them to be. He used a star to get them to Jerusalem. He used the mouth of a filthy, nasty, evil king 
to get them exactly where he wanted them to be. Do you realize that God is still moving in people's hearts today? God may be moving in your heart. Maybe you came here and your life is all torn upside down and you just walked into this church hoping to get a word and maybe God is saying to you right now, I've been doing all this stuff in your life so that you'll pay attention to me. And do you realize that God is moving in people's lives all around Sanford, all around DeBerry, all around Lake Mary, all around Geneva, all around Volusia County, all in Seminole County. God is moving in people's hearts and it's this time of year that God can use people like you and me to get them to Him. And listen, if God's moving in someone's heart, He doesn't have to have you. And if you won't be obedient, He'll find somebody else. But the reason why they came is because there was this hole in their heart. There was this longing within them. They were looking for the king. And so they come, and the Bible says here, they're going to do something. So here's the last point, what they did. Who they were, why they came, what they did. Verse 9 The Bible says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, this kind of gives me a clue of what that light was. I think that that light really wasn't a true star. Why? Because stars don't move like that. It's almost as if God was spotlighting, pointing these men exactly directly to where Jesus was. Now, in my mind, I'm wondering, was there a beep? Like, when they left Jerusalem and they saw this light, did it go beep? And they got closer, it went beep, beep, and closer, beep, 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 and they got there, beep, 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 I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's in my mind. Maybe it's not in your mind. Maybe it's just kind of something that just makes me think. But here's what I do know. God moved these men to worship Jesus. These men weren't Jews. These men were Gentiles. They were from the nations, and it fulfills Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, in which the Bible says that nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So they come into this house, Mary and Joseph's house, not a palace in Jerusalem, but a shack in Bethlehem. And the Bible says that when they saw that star shining on that shack, that they rejoiced. Notice. They rejoiced exceedingly with, say this with me, great joy. That means they were happy. They were full of joy. Have you ever been full of joy before? I know some of you, maybe you haven't been full of joy, but have you ever been full of joy, unspeakable, full of glory? Have you ever just been full of joy in which you just are in the presence of, of Jesus and, and, and He's so desirable that just to be near Him is overwhelming? When have you last been overwhelmed by God? So they come into His presence and they are overwhelmed. There is a joy here, a greater joy than seeing a baby born, a greater joy than seeing your favorite sports team win a national championship, a a greater joy than winning the lottery. They won the real lottery. They met Jesus. And the Bible says that they came in. I noticed verse 11. This has to be an awkward moment. Mary and Joseph is there. It's, it's late. It's got to be dark because there's a, there's a star shining. And they're in there, and God only knows what they're sitting and talking about, what they're eating, and then all of a sudden they get a... Joseph opens the door, and he sees these men, these wealthy men, these magis with Burger King hats on. 
and robes. And they're, they're like, what? And the Bible says that they saw the child with Mary. In my mind, he is sitting on Mary's lap, and he's probably wearing a worn-out, dirty onesie. And the Bible says that when they saw this child, could you imagine this afternoon you open the door, you have a two-year-old sitting on your lap, and, and, and great men of great power walk into your house and just bow down and worship the kid. It's astonishing. They just fell down. They followed the star to worship the one who hung the stars. These powerful, wealthy, pagan Gentiles ascribed honor and glory to a two-year-old. What amazing faith that had to have been. You know right now that they're probably living about three or four babies, toddlers, who are one day going to be the President of the United States. Right now, living, breathing right now. No one's out seeking them. No one's out looking for them, born to be president of the United States. No one's coming to their house and paying homage. Well, these men came to this house. It didn't look like a king's house. But they came in and they worshipped. What great faith. What, what amazing faith. Would you have done that? I love what J.C. Ryle says. He's a, a pastor of the 20th century. And here's what he said. He said, they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak, and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world and they fell down and worshipped Him. We read, Ryle says, of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. Everyone else that we know in the New Testament became a believer because of something they heard or something they saw. Many, if not all, in the Gospels saw Jesus do a miracle, or they heard Jesus speak. All these guys got was a two-year-old on the lap of a poor girl. And yet they believed. Why? Because they realized that what they had been looking for for their entire lives was sitting on the lap of that girl, and that child was their king. And so what did they do? Did they just take a selfie? Put it on Instagram? And leave? No, what did they do? The Bible says that they opened up their treasure box. And they offered him gifts. In this day, whenever you went to anyone who was superior to you, you brought them gifts. You never went to a superior without gifts. And these men didn't just come with fruits and dates. They came with expensive gifts, gifts that were only for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they came into this shack. The box that held the stuff in it was worth more than the house itself. 
And they came and they laid these things down at the feet of Joseph and Mary where, where Jesus was and they lavished at these expensive gifts on these babies. What, listen, could you imagine if you have a two-year-old and you bring them gold, frankincense, and myrrh, do you think they'll be happy on Christmas Day? No, you're going to try to take them back to Walmart and get them a toy. Why did they bring these gifts? Well, some scholars say that the reason they brought these gifts is because God was going to, God, uh, the, that Mary and Joseph needed this money to get them to Egypt because Herod's going to kill all the babies and this is the only way they're going to be able to afford to live in Egypt is that God needed them to bring this money. Well, here's the truth. God didn't need this money. God doesn't need your money. And, and they weren't bribing God. What were they doing? They were worshiping God. Here's the truth about worship. Worship costs. It's not cheap. It's not casual. We've made it way too cheap and way too casual. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to wear a suit and tie to worship Jesus. I'm not telling you you've got to wear your Sunday best to worship Jesus. What I'm talking about when it comes to costing something is that to worship Jesus will cost you your time. It will cost you your attention. You know, it will cost you your preferences. It will cost you your desires, your talents. It will cost you hard work. It will cost you money. But here's what I know. A worship that costs nothing is worth nothing. And it's so, it's so easier in our consumer culture Christianity, it is far easier to whine than it is to worship. We whine far more when we come to church than we worship. And that's from the pulpit to the pew. But true worship of Jesus always involves giving to Jesus. See, when we come and we worship God, we, we're coming to give Him praise, not to get our warm fuzzy. We're coming to be in His presence. And so when we come, we don't come empty-handed. Now, part of that is giving financially. I know some of you that are guests, you're saying, oh, here it is. Every time I come to church, all they do is talk about giving. Well, come to church more. Maybe we won't. I'm just kidding. We don't always talk about church or always talk about giving at church. But here's what I'm trying to say is that you cannot worship God without giving to Jesus because giving is a natural overflow of a heart that is grateful for Jesus. So I wrote this this week, and here's what I wrote. I said, you can give without worshiping Jesus, but you can't worship Jesus without giving. You can't. See, if Jesus is the true king, if he is indeed the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God, if he is the light of the world who saves people from their sins, then he is worthy of everything we have. These men not only gave of their gifts, but they also put a target on their backs. Because we're going to see later on that they're not going to go back to Herod. And remember, Herod was crazy. They went a different way, but yet they put a target on their back as Christ followers. You know, in different countries, when someone is baptized, that was a, it's a big deal. If you go to countries like India or Myanmar or Bangladesh, you go to uh, countries in North Africa and the Middle East, any one of those people who gets baptized, they get baptized not because somebody made them, they get baptized because they truly believe. Because in those contexts, to be baptized is to publicly say you are a follower of Christ, and to be baptized in those countries is to give it all up. No one in India or Myanmar or China or in other countries where it is extremely hard to be a Christian, none of them get baptized casually because they understand that if you are public about Jesus and if you're public for Jesus, it will have a cost. 
These men understood to follow Jesus was to have a cost. So this week is, we've been thinking about going above and beyond and our above and beyond offering. And hopefully, maybe you've given already online or you're about to give here in a moment. The thought that came into my mind as I gave online this week was this. Am I giving this money only out of an obligation or duty? Or am I doing this out of an overflow of gratitude and love for God? And the question is, is, is the gift that I'm giving to Jesus actually even worthy of Jesus? Is it sacrificial enough? What does my gift say to God about my love for God? The truth is, I could give Him everything I have and I don't think it would still be enough. Because everything I have is His. But whatever I give, however big or however small it is, whatever I give and I give to Him and I give in faith, that's what pleases God. God doesn't need your money. This church doesn't need your money. God will provide. Listen, He's provided in so many different ways. He'll, he'll continue to provide. As long as we're preaching His Word and following and trying to be a light in this city and a light in this nation, He's going to provide for this church. But here's what I want you to hear, that when you and I give what, what God doesn't need and what we might enjoy, when you and I give what God doesn't need and what we might enjoy, we're saying to God, God, you are my treasure. Not my money, not anything else, it's you. So these men gave. Now, a lot of people speculate on these gifts. Some people say, well, the gold represents Jesus as king and it represents his sovereign dominion. So in the future, these men were laying down at his feet this gold and that shows his Sovereign dominion. Others, frankincense, believe that it, since it was used in a temple in the worship of God, that it represents that Jesus is God and it shows his sinless deity. And others say that myrrh represents Jesus' sacrifice. That he came as a substitute and he died on the cross for our sins because myrrh was that which was given to him at his crucifixion and it was often used in the burial of a dead body. I don't know what those symbols mean. I don't know why it had to be gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't know why it couldn't have been something else. you know, we give to him because he gave to us. You can't outgive God. Whatever you give God is not going to be enough compared to what he's given to you. But I don't give to God to get from God. And I don't give to God just so that other people can know how much I give to God. I give to God because he gave to me and I want to give everything I have to him. No one gets saved by looking at a nativity. They get saved by looking at the cross. They get saved by seeing what it cost. This king who these men worship came and gave his life for them and he gave his life for us so that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation can have a right relationship with God. Jesus came from heaven to earth so that you can go to earth, to heaven, not on your merit, but his. Because he died on the cross for you. Jesus paid it all. Verse 12 says this. After being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country and went, an, and went another way. They came, they worshipped, they were warned. Don't go to Herod, he's crazy. And go home a different way. And they went home a different way. They went home a different way physically. Physically, they took a different route. But they also went home a different way spiritually. They're not the same person because whenever you meet the king, you're never the same. These men came with questions and they came with longing. And they left with answers and satisfaction. They met the king. The question is, have you met the king? 
The same God who moved the stars to get these men to Jesus is the same God who's orchestrated every event in your life to bring you to Him. And if you're here today, it's not an accident. God brought you here to hear His Word so that you would put your faith and trust in King Jesus. He can save you. If you are saved by His blood, then everything you have is His and anything you give tells in comparison to what He's already given to you in Christ. So I began with Kanye. I'm going to end with Kanye. Let me, let me read to you one of his songs. It actually is my favorite on the album, God Is. He says this, Everything that I felt, praise the Lord. Worship Christ with the best of your portions. I know I won't forget all He's done. He's the strength in this race that I run. Every time I look up, I see God's faithfulness. And it shows me just how much He is miraculous. I can't keep it to myself. I can't sit here and be still. Everybody I will tell till the whole world is healed. King of kings and Lord of lords, all the things He has in store, from the rich to the poor, all are welcome through the door. You won't ever be the same when you call on Jesus' name. Listen to the words I'm saying. Jesus saved me. Now I'm saying. It is no secret what God can do. What He's done for others, He'll do for you. If you're here today, that hole in your heart can only be filled by the King. The longing of your life can only be filled by Jesus. So today, give your life to Him. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.